Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Thank you to everybody that has been praying for my wife and I in the series of events and such that have happened over the past few weeks. We appreciate that wholeheartedly. I know that we would have not been able to uh, make it uh, physically or mentally uh, without those prayers. And I started looking at my calendar and unless something happens, I'm going to be able to just be home for about three weeks. And I'm just happy about it. I'm happy about it. And so thank you again for all of your prayers. Uh, We appreciate them wholeheartedly. And I think our trip this last week will probably be one of the last trips of of need that would need to be made unless just something unforeseen would come up or happen. We have everything else managed in such a way we can do it at distance. And so we thank the Lord. You don't know how much we thank the Lord. We thank the Lord. Amen for for that, Hallelujah! And also uh, this past this past Sunday before we left, um, Mike Penrod gave me a card, and within it was money from all you precious people out here, uh, in order to get Sister McGee and I to prison. I don't know what church would take up an offering to get their pastor and pastor's wife to prison, but you all did, and it it just hit me at a juncture in the road. I just started bawling like a baby. Uh, with everything that had been going on. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, we appreciate that. Um, and as you know, with us being busy, it, it's just created where days that Don would normally had worked to secure monies and stuff for that, just other things has not been there because we've been totally invested in this other scenario and situation. And I appreciate you doing that. And we're going to go and just represent the church Amen. In that prison and and whatever happens there, you reap a harvest from that. Absolutely directly, direct correlation. You reap a harvest from that. And so we're expecting great things. That's where I'm going to go in three weeks. We already got everything on our trip to the Missouri. Then we went on and got tickets and we'll be on our way down there. And it's there. I believe we're supposed to have around 450, 220. They had a pre-sign up. So right now we're at 220 with the number that will be in services for those. So who knows what the Lord will do there in Texas. I know what he'll do. I know what he'll do. Amen. He'll just do it again. Amen. We're going to turn to Romans chapter number 2. If you can get my slide there started there. Uh, Brother Roberts, appreciate that. Please, sir. We're going to we started a series last week called The Gift of Repentance. We talked about last week the gift of repentance. We're going to continue today uh, talking a different venue about the Lord giving us a space to repent, a space to repent. Let's go to Romans chapter number two and verse number four. Just read this one verse of scripture and that will be enough to get us started here this morning. The Bible says in verse number four, question is posed or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. 
not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So once again, the gift of repentance is our series. But because, again, we all battle sin, this concept, idea of sin, and deal with temptation from day to day. Not has only God enabled us the ability or given us the gift of repentance, but he has allotted a space and a time for repentance. Amen. Let's go to the Lord right now. Father, I need you this morning. I pray, oh God, that you're able to touch my mind, touch my physical body today, I pray. Strengthen me, Lord. God, to be able to share, Father, from your word. I pray, oh God, today, enlighten our souls and our spirits. I pray, God, by the word of the Lord this morning. God, we need, Lord, this measure of repentance to, Lord, go beyond a one-time act, but, God, that it would be a daily thing, as Paul said, that he died daily, or rather, he repented daily. I pray, God, let it become just a natural part of our lives, God, that it can help us, Lord, God, against, Lord, sin and temptation that would be luring around to entrap God, us, Lord, and Lord, cause us to fall. I love you and I praise you, Jesus, for what you accomplish in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. God bless you today in Jesus. In Jesus' name. The circumstances of his birth were supernatural. His parents were beyond childbearing years. The Bible even says that they were well stricken in years but although that was the description that was laid to this couple according to God's word they were prime candidates to nurture and to develop what would become to be known as the voice of God at a time in which it was desperately needed for four centuries there had been no prophetic voice no inspired pen, so to speak. No divine visitation or angelic visitation for four centuries. The religious world of the first century in the pages of the New Testament had strayed far, as oft times we do, strayed far from the things of God, from an authentic relationship with God. And perhaps on one hand it was because that God was not speaking or there wasn't that divine visitation or that word from the Lord. And so man, to a certain degree, was left to his own devices and his own ways. And in doing so, he corrupted his way. He assumed the religious reign, if you will, in Israel of being just himself for himself about himself. But at this moment in time, there is an entire nation that needs to be shook. An entire nation brought back, if you will, to level ground. Brought to its knees to so searching, gut-wrenching, if you could call it that, repentance. And so whenever we leave the last book of the Old Testament of Malachi and, and the ink is just drying upon the pages, the Bible speaks to us now in the New Testament about these terms of people called Sadducees and Pharisees they had not been coined in the Old Testament but now they are here among the pages of the New Testament it's during the time of the second temple 
that these different groups would emerge and that they would dominate the culture of the days of Jesus and control the religious mindset of the days of Jesus. And as we have taught you before that the Sadducees were a ruling class of people that were of the religious elite. They they came from the ranks of those that made up the governing body of those 70 elders that were known as the Sanhedrin in the New Testament Scripture. They were quite liberal according to history, quite liberal in their just give me a moment. I'm trying to do it with one hand. It just wasn't working. It's getting on my nerves just a little bit. I was choking up here. They had become quite liberal in their interpretation of Scripture. They had went as far to the place to deny that the resurrection of the dead, that couldn't happen, would not take place. They discredited anything that was supernatural, anything that was spiritual. It was their religious prerogative that they denied the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they wanted to put him to death. Something that's just a little side note concerning the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And this is kind of me going back to our little God is one series. But just hold on just a moment. The Sadducees weren't looking for anything supernatural or spiritual. They were just looking for the literal. They were looking for the man. And when you come to the Pharisees, they believed in the supernatural, angels and resurrection from the dead. And so they were only looking for the spiritual side of Jesus Christ. And so we have two people that are falling out with who God is because one's just leaning on the spiritual aspect of him. The other is just leaning on the natural aspect of him. But he came as divine and humanity. And you see the interaction, how it differs when he deals with the Sadducees and deals with the Pharisees according to what they were looking for. But he was what they were looking for and what they were not looking for. And that's the reason why both people missed it. All right. Nevertheless, and so then the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in miracles. They believed in a resurrection from the dead. They, they interpreted the scriptures. They were very legalistic in their approach to God's word. Amen. They believed in keeping the letter of the law and they missed uh, the, the, the spirit of the law. And as a result of this, it gave them a skewed view of God's word. And as a result of it, it made them to be self-righteous people. They were lended to hypocrisy and corruption. And as a result of this, whenever here comes John the Baptist, is who I've been describing, when here comes John the Baptist as the voice crying in the wilderness, uh, these two groups of people have different ways that they are going to react to John because nobody was going to arise among the Sadducees and give the declaration that John gave. And none was going to rise among the Pharisees and give the declaration that John gave. But here they needed somebody that could arrest their attention. They needed somebody that could somehow step out there and that they would give ear to. And so the man of God that comes to them, he's a man that has not been trained according to the sect of the Sadducees. He's a man that has not been trained according to the sect of the Pharisees. He's not been privately groomed by either side of the party. Amen. He's not in anybody's back pocket. He's God's man. Amen. Uh, uh, you know, for modern day language, he's not been receiving tithes from anybody. 
He's God's man. And he just showed up. And he's a firebrand. Boy, we see him just, just belt forward in the New Testament scripture. He's not a cookie cutter communicator. He's kind of rough around the edges a little bit. Uh, you know, it's not like he has the angelic voice, if you will. Uh, he's a man that's a little bit rough. But whenever he came into the world, it was an angel that would declare his birth and his birth name. And, and an angel that would even cause his father to be dumb until that child was born. He turned a somersault in his mom's womb. Before he ever made his exit, whenever he heard about Mary being with child, the Bible says he leapt inside of his mother's womb. And he would come forth as a world a world shaker. He would have a ministry that centered around remission of sins and repentance and calling people to that place. He would be similar in ministry to that of Elijah of the Old Testament scripture. Amen. And his wardrobe. Uh, he might not be even welcome in some of our churches today because his wardrobe was camel-haired suit. <laughs> Amen. Camel to haired suit and his, he accessorized with a leathern belt. Let me tell you, for somebody that's doing a lot of baptizing, it takes a real man to have a leather belt on when you're in water for days baptizing. Because what does wet leather do when it gets wet? It cinches up. Uh, matter of fact, the scripture says it was a leather girdle, but it, it's, it's interpreted as belt. Uh, nevertheless, so uh, his diet was, was locust with a side helping of honey. As the Bible declares. He didn't have a synagogue that he preached in. Didn't have a pulpit that he went to. His pulpit was some rock out there. Maybe by the Jordan River. But within just a few weeks of his ministry. He would start by the message that he was proclaiming. Empty out every synagogue that was in the known area from Dan to Beersheba, as it would be told. People were coming to see this, what they were calling the reed that was shaken in the wind. And his message was simple. And we heard some good messages just this past weekend, but it was simple, but it was yet powerful. It was the message that was desperately needed for his age. It was this. He cried, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand what do you think what do you think it was that caused john's message of repentance to become so widely accepted by all the people that people would come from the synagogues out to a wilderness to a desert place to hear him speak and oftentimes when john spoke repent ye for the kingdom of god is at hand he would follow it up many times with a question even of the scribes and pharisees that come out to hear what he had to say he would say who warned you of the wrath that is to come. Who warned you of the wrath that is to come? He spoke, yes, many times about the coming Savior, about Jesus Christ, about one coming after him, who he was not worthy to build, stoop down and unlatch his, his, his sandal, and about one coming after him that would baptize with Holy Ghost and fire. But to those scribes and Pharisees, he said, who warned you about the wrath to come? Because he believed that some of them that were in the crowd was there because they had heard of some day, sometime in the future, that there was going to come the judgment. Of God. The judgment of God. Do you ever remember in your life, and you don't have to raise your hand this morning, but do you ever remember in your life the first time that God called you to a place of repentance? Do you remember that? I remember that. I remember being an eight-year-old boy. Eight-year-old boy. 
probably whenever the first time I really felt that God was calling. My mom and dad called me to repentance quite often, but the first time I remember God calling me to repentance. That eight-year-old boy that, that, and you've heard me say it before, you know, in the Bible study that my uh, dad conduct, conducted in our house, going through a search for truth Bible study and getting toward the end of that Bible study and talking about, you know, the great tribulation and all these things that was going to befall the world. And my little heart began to quiver and conviction fell upon me. And I would get up normally in the mornings after I got ready for school at eight years old when I got completely ready. I would go lay back down with my mom in her bed. And I remember, Brother Mason, I was in that time, I'd start asking mom questions. Uh, and what was going on was conviction was happening in an eight-year-old boy's life. In so much that finally that Friday night of youth service when my father was youth pastor, and he preached that, tugged on me enough that I felt like I needed to do something about it. And I made my way to an altar of prayer. Eight years old, what, what can an eight-year-old, you know, get into and do? It's not about what I did, but it's what I was born into. Amen. I was born into and there was enough that was relayed through Bible study and through my teaching in Sunday school classes and through the preaching that I heard in, in arenas just like this. There was enough said and spoken that the spirit of God, mom and dad didn't take me to the altar. None of my sisters took me to the altar, but the spirit of the Lord drew me to an altar because sister Jessup, I started to realize at an eight year old of a wrath that was to come judgment that was to come. And I was would never be good enough to escape that. I needed God in my life to be a covering for me in that. And I remember that time of repentance well. Tears streaming down my face as only an eight-year-old could. Amen. Just feel quaking, if you will, before what I, you know, my image of God. You know, something was just so massive and so great, which he is. But you understand an eight-year-old's perception of God. When we, look, when we look at the scripture, our focus of our scripture today in Romans chapter number 2 and verse number 4, when we look at this, it presents a very unusual and interesting perspective and a motivator for repentance. And that is this. A motivator for repentance, according to our scripture today, is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. We would not typically think that the blessings of from the Lord would lead us to repentance. But Paul said, know you not that God's goodness leadeth thee to repentance. And so there's a powerful lesson here. Whenever we think back in Judges chapter, or Joshua rather, chapter number seven, and we consider the story of Achan, who had been positioned by God to receive perhaps one of the greatest blessings of his life at that moment, the Old Testament, they were on the verge of going into and inheriting and conquering the promised land that God had spoken all the way back to Abraham would be his. And Achan was on the verge of walking in that land. They had already come, you know, they, they'd come here. They're going to fight against Jericho. They're going to go around those walls. Amen. They're, they're going to go and inherit the land. But he was going to be living in, if he got there, if he got to that land of promise, the promise was this. He could live in a house he didn't even build. 
He could eat of food that he didn't even plant in the ground. And so it was very appealing to the whole nation of Israel, for that matter, who had been nomads from here to there, many times not knowing where their next meal was going to come from. Many times their dwelling place being a tent. Can you imagine Achan thinking, now I'm going to have a place to stay, going to have food. This is the promised land. This is the greatest thing ever. And so here they go. They're going to march around the walls of Jericho. And it seems like, at least, as we read that evidently even in that moment maybe that Achan can't get his mind off what he thought he had coming to him because at the very first opportunity when it was given unto him he reached for the spoils of Israel's conquest right there the bounty that God had reserved for himself and so because of Achan's impatience Achan's impatience left him in a place where it would not let him feel blessed and humbled by what God had in store for him and his family insomuch he took what was not his. And the Bible reveals to us in Joshua 7 that Achan's descent into covetousness was just like Adam and Eve's in the garden. He saw the Babylonian garment and those items. He coveted them. He desired them. He took them, the Bible said, and then he hid them. That's amazing that the blessing of God can actually become a curse to you. The blessing of God can actually become a curse to you. And the way that God's blessings can become a curse is this. And we touched on this just a little bit last week. Whenever we believe they endorse our sinful lifestyle or a sinful action, God's blessings that he pours on us in those moments of incongruence. If we think it's because it's okay and God's okay with it. That's where the blessing of God can become a curse to us. Because we've misinterpreted what his blessings purpose is for. Paul said his goodness was to lead us to repentance. His goodness wasn't to endorse where we currently were. It was to transition us to repent over what we had done. Amen. Because whenever we consider the goodness of God, sincerely, if our heart is where it needs to be, when we consider the goodness of God, you've ever heard people say, well, I'm unworthy. That's a good position to be in. The goodness of God should have a little feeling that it brings with it that, you know what, as humanity, as fallen man, I am unworthy. Huh? I am unworthy. Jesus told a parable. He told a parable of a rich, a rich man who received many good things in his life, lived life quite lavishly, and there was also a beggar that sat at his gate every day by the name of Lazarus laid at the rich man's gate. And in his lifetime, it would seem he received more negative things, bad things, or lesser things than the rich man. But as the parable would go, in the parable, both the rich man and Lazarus, they both die. They both die. 
they go into eternity and, and the curtain is opened up for us of them being in eternity. And when we see the rich man in eternity, the Bible says he is tormented in hell. And when we see Lazarus in eternity, he is comforted in what is called Abraham's bosom. And here's something that we need to pull from this little parabolic story, and that is this. Good things did not make the rich man good. And bad things did not make Lazarus bad. Good happenings for the rich man did not make him good. Bad happenings for Lazarus did not make him bad. Someone say amen. Not only do they not make you good, they don't necessarily endorse you are good. I Listen, whenever Job said, and he was going through his trial and his difficulty, and he said, shall I receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil also? We, we must be so careful. We must be so careful that we don't mis misinterpret God's goodness. Saul, Saul in 1 Samuel, I can't remember right now what, what chapter it was. I'm trying to look ahead. I think I pinned it down somewhere. But, but Saul in 1 Samuel, one of the chapters, I'm, I'm wanting to say 19, he was on a rampage at that moment in time to go kill David. There was murder. You listening to me? There was murder in Saul's heart. He sent a band of messengers to go to David. As they went, they come among a group of prophets where Samuel was. And the Bible states plainly the Spirit of God was. And when the messengers got there, they started to prophesy. I believe that Saul sent those messengers about three, three different times he sent messengers. And that same thing happened. Amen. In those times. Finally, since that happened, you know what Saul decided? I'm going to go myself. Saul, who has a mind frame to kill David, goes with murder in his heart. But when he gets to where the prophets are and the Spirit of God is, he begins to prophesy. Now, a bystander could sit over here and say, well, my God, Saul must be walking in tandem with the Spirit of the Lord. Saul must be just right where he needs to be concerning God because he's prophesying. The Spirit of God has come upon him. Folks, if anybody thought that, they would misinterpret the goodness of God. God wasn't endorsing Saul's murderous heart in that moment. God was trying by his goodness lead Saul to a place of repentance. He's given that man a space for repentance. Amen. Well, he healed my body of cancer. I don't know how many people we've seen healed. Or the, 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 the tragic things in life turn out well. And they took it as all things good rather than as I need to repent because he's been really good to me. Better than I deserve. Amen. Amen. Better than I deserve. Someone say amen. You know, sometimes whenever we struggle with temptation... And we ask ourselves, you know, well, how do we usually succumb? When do we usually succumb to temptation or sin? 
and you'll get two different you'll get two different reports really among people. Some people will tell you that they struggle they struggle with temptation when everything's going well. When everything's fine and they feel like they're flying their own kite so to speak, but they forget the wind came from God. You know what I'm saying? And so they, they, that, that, that's when they fall to temptation. That's when they feel most vulnerable, when they are on the top of the world. And we can see uh, different places and stories in Scripture where that happened to people that we study and we look at. But there are other people that will tell you that they find themselves prey to temptation during the hard times. Why? Because then some in the hard times, it's like, well, God doesn't care about me anyway. He's the one that's allowing all this to come up on me. So who cares with God? Right? I mean, those are the people that you have. Those that are high on the mountain, everything's going well, and it's like comes in the back door and boom, it takes them and others. Well, everything's going bad, so I'm just going to get bitter at God. It's God's fault. So it's just a human condition. All these different variables in life, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, sometimes people are are, are prone to temptation. But the reality of it all God wants us to maintain a certain level of humility before him. Here's another point we wish to discover this morning. I'm a little bit behind here. I'm sorry. Good things do not usually motivate carnal humans to demonstrate repentance before God. Look at that and let that sink in. Good things do not usually motivate carnal, that's important, the word there, carnal humans to demonstrate repentance before God. Because many times, blessings can blind us to our need of God. Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse number 24, and again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What was the Lord relaying in that moment? All rich people are going to hell? No, no. But what he was relaying was this understanding of human life. How blessings and goodness can dull our sensibilities to our real utter dependence that we have on God. Things, good things. Things to live by and with can dull our sensibilities to how dependent we really are on God. And so whenever we come to that place, when we take credit for all the good things of life that we enjoy, it's not only going to blind us, not only going to blind us to our desperate need of God, but it's going to lead us down a path that is in opposition to God. Throughout the Old Testament, many times it happened over and over again, that chronic cycle of Israel in that place of they're in bondage. They're crying out to God. Amen. They get repentance. They ask God for help. God delivers them. God blesses them. God blesses them. And what do they do? They backslide. And they do it all over again. Sadly, from the vantage point of a pastor and a minister over the years, you see that same cycle happen in people's lives. I've said it. You know, if you've heard me say it before, some people can't live for God unless bad things are happening in their life. 
because they're the ones that are driven to God when bad things happen. And say, well, man, I wonder when all this is going to be over. When we learn to live for God, whether it's bad or good. Years ago, years ago, Brother Sean Garnett, we were there and uh, we were preaching revival for him. And uh, he was, I think he was, it was himself or, or his grandpa Evans. I don't remember. But uh, he, he preached on John 3.16. I think it might have been Papal Evans, maybe. John 3.16. And he said, uh, his Papal had preached that sermon for every service. He preached, he preached at every service for five services in a row. I think that's right. And he came up, someone in the church came up and said it. Pastor Evans, why in the world are you preaching the same thing for, for all these five services? He says, because when they, he, had, he was in North Carolina, and he said, because when they get it, he said, I'll quit preaching it. <laughs> Amen. And so, man, I'm in trouble again, and we go to God, and then things get better, and we go away from God, and I'm in trouble again. What it is sometimes, maybe the trouble will alleviate a little bit when we learn the lesson of just staying with the Lord. Staying with the Lord through high tide or whether it be low tide. Amen. So some can't do it unless, unless everything is bad. Some can't do it unless everything is good. But good things don't make you good. And bad things don't make you bad. <laughs> and we don't necessarily need bad things to make us good. Everybody hear me? We don't necessarily need bad things to make us good. Or do we necessarily need good things to make us good either? Paul addressed it like this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 11. He says, not that I speak concerning one. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I know how to be abased or to be humbled. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. He says, everywhere in all things I have learned. That's learned. Learned. In other words, it just wasn't something innate. It just, he learned. So I bet he had his bad times, right? <laughs> and, his, and something that taught him. I learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What? Yes. Paul says, I've been through tough times, but I learned how to get content there. I've been through some really good times, and I've learned how to be content there. He said, but when the rubber meets the road, this is what I know. I do all things, whether it lends to the fact of good or whether it lends to the fact, you know, of negative things that would happen in my life. I can do all things through Christ, not on my own, not because of the job I have, the home I have, or this I have. It's because of Christ who strengthens me. Now, when we are where we should, so carnal Christians, goodness doesn't necessarily motivate them to repentance. But whenever we are in good standing or a right place with God, his goodness, as the apostle described, should have an humbling effect upon our lives. Should have an humbling effect on our lives. You know the reason why scripture says that if you had an enemy that you, you know, you don't render, you don't render good for good or evil to evil you know if you have an enemy that you do good unto them because the bible says in doing so you will heap coals of fire up on their head what is that what is that because if you're the enemy and i do good to you and i'm doing good you know what the enemy is thinking in his mind 
how can I be so bad to this person when they are so good to me? Right? Right? God comes to you and he's good to you and he's good to you and he's good to you. You know what he wants you to do? Reflect like that enemy does. How can I be in in such opposition to God when he's being so good to me? You know what he's wanting to do? Drive us to a place of repentance, Brother Michael. He wants to take us to a place of repentance. Because if you keep being good to enemy, there might be, I'm not saying there will always be, but there might be somewhere along the road. You know what? They're going to make amends for whatever it is they have done because they feel horrible because you're so good to them. God is so good to us because he wants to drive us to a place. How can I act or react or say or live or do the way that I'm doing when God's been so good to me? If it was a cat of nine tails on the back or a crown of thorns on the head or a spear through the side or the blood that was shed, he's been so good. How can I? He's trying to lead me to repentance through his goodness. Through his goodness. And so goodness can have an humbling effect upon us if we are in, in, in right standing with God. We'll have a thankful dis- disposition unto the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy in the last days. He said many, this is what the scripture says. He said many will become unthankful. And immediately following that, you can look at it in 2 Timothy 3 and 2. Many will become unthankful. And right after that, he added that many would also become unholy. Because when we become unthankful, we're one step away from becoming unholy. What are you talking about? Because when you talk about holiness, just in its roots, it's that set apart, right? Holiness means holy is set apart or separated or sanctified. So when you enter that step of unthankfulness, you're just a step away from not being set apart unto the Lord because why an unthankful heart does not recognize that every good and perfect gift cometh from heaven above unthankfulness it's kind of like it's kind of like this and and I was and it, I'll just use myself for example yesterday on our way home we stopped at Arby's to eat and uh, uh, my dad my bishop told me to get in front of him he wanted to pay for my meal okay okay so I had told all the guys to get up front. Dad was paying. And, but anyway. <laughs> and so. But, uh, uh, and, and so I did that. And, and, and we ate and everything got done. And, and I got home and it was late in the night that it came in my head that I forgot to even say thank you to Dad for buying my meal. Now here's the thing. Are you listening? Here's the thing. Because whenever you, when you get to a mode of unthankfulness, you'll get to a place that what is coming to you is what should be coming to you anyway. We become, yes, the entitlement, the, the, the being callous. You know, people do good stuff for you and they do it long enough, then you don't have to say thank you more. They should keep doing it and we raise our hand when they don't do it. have no ill intent concerning dad he's bought my bills more than one time in my life I guarantee you it kind of slipped my mind actually amen I, I need to repent I know what God helped me right here this is this, this. but I, I, I was telling but what I, I I'm trying to use that as an illustration whenever it happens so regularly 
you feel as though it's something owed to you. And when you feel like stuff's owed to you, you become not as thankful as though when you feel like you don't deserve it. And so if we enter in a place of unthankfulness with God, you know what it is? Then I just expect, God, you should put breath in my lungs. I just expect that I'm worthy and deserving enough that there should be food on my table. I just expect and believe that you should take the disease away whenever it comes upon my body. I just, no, 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 no. I don't want to get unthankful because that's one step away from being unholy. I want to recognize his goodness and cause it and have it cause me to respond appropriately if I'm not in good standing with my God. Amen. And Brother Mason hit on it. He's up here. He's teaching right along with me here. <laughs> the Bible says the, the, the unthankfulness is usually accompanied by an entitlement mentality. Amen. It's horrible. It's horrible to get in a place that you feel like everybody owes you something. You owe me this job. You owe me this car. You owe me this house. You owe me this. You owe me that. You owe me a thank you. You owe me a, a smile. You owe me a hug. You owe me a pat on the back. You owe me. But see, that works totally against, that's totally diabolical to God's word against the whole theology of grace and our salvation through Jesus Christ. God owes us nothing. But he gave us everything. But he owes us nothing. Strategically mentioned in that Romans 2 and 4 scripture, verses 3 through 4, as a matter of fact, is mentioned the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God toward us. If you read the verses of scripture prior to that, you read Romans chapter number 1, and it's talking about how the people had then made images after the, the similitude of the creatures rather than worshiping their creator. The Bible says that they became unthankful. And it further comes along then that the word of the Lord comes and speaks about how judgment is going to come. And it speaks that we need not judge another individual whenever we have the same thing in our life that we're judging in their life. Okay? That's really whenever the, well, don't judge me thing should come into play. It's whenever you're trying to judge in somebody's life something that you have. It's kind of like the moat bean episode. When you're trying to judge in someone else's life, something the, ex the exact same thing taking place in your life. It's like me committing adultery and trying to call out adultery in your life. Okay? That, that's, that's really where, where it boils down to. But he says, because this judgment that's going to come, it's going to come at the hand of the Lord, and it's going to come to all who have committed these things. He's speaking about judgment, what God's people should receive, ought to receive, but then it tells us instead of judgment, and we spoke a little bit about it last week, that anytime God comes with judgment, he's looking for a loophole to extend mercy. He's, he's looking for a loophole to extend mercy. He is judge, and he'll do that if he wants to, but more than judgment, he, more than wanting to give judgment to you, he's wanting to give mercy, and he's trying to figure out a way to do it. And so he has this goodness and this forbearance and this long-suffering of God. Now, he don't owe that to you, but he's being merciful. He's giving that to you. And whenever we experience that and see it for what it is, it should garner in our lives a spirit of repentance and humility before God. 
Someone say amen. Going on because I've said already some of these things earlier because I felt the Lord just wanted at that moment. God uses us at times to help impact others. I, I try, I try even as, as a pastor and a minister of the gospel. You know, sometimes you hear me maybe in my prayer before we go to the word of the Lord of teaching or preaching. And many times I'll say, Lord, and whatever you accomplish. And I've said before, I'll thank you whenever I get back to my seat. And uh, what I'm recognizing in that moment is trying to let the Lord know that uh, he uses us sometimes to help and reach other people, but it's his use, it's his power, his empowerment that allows us to do that. And I want to understand my position in all of this, that I'm, I'm not, that I don't get cocky or think more of myself than what I ought, as Scripture says, but I should go to the Lord and, and be thankful to the Lord for what he accomplishes in our church, in your all's lives, in my own personal life. And I've learned, I've learned over the course of my life that some of the best ways to uh, develop and to protect a spirit of thankfulness in my life. Brother Brian Roberts, some of the ways to protect that is to do some certain disciplines in life. Like prayer. Fasting. Mm -hmm. This one might catch you off guard. Giving. Fasting is a good way to keep humility in your life. You just go. Just take three days and go without food. Your flesh becomes very humble. It's crying out. It has a voice. But it's becoming very humble. You know, because in those moments, Sister, sister uh, uh, Jessup, even when things would come across my plate that I would get mad about, I don't have the strength to get angry about. I'm just here. I've just been, even just over the past few weeks, I've told my wife, you know, if anything came across the plate right now to upset me, I just don't even have the strength to be upset. I'm just tired. It's humbling. It's an humbling experience. It's an humbling thing. Again, we've talked about this before. It's an humbling thing to go to God in prayer, to say that you are a needy person. To recognize that you can't do this thing called life or Christian life on your own. Amen. Giving is another good thing of practicing thankfulness. That old Deuteronomy scripture that the Lord said, when you come to me at the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, and you come to me during these three major feasts, he said, don't you come with your hands empty. Why? Because you're going to come with a portion of your crop. You're going to come with a portion of your harvest. Yeah, you put seed in the ground. But who gave you the ground to put the seed in? Yeah, you put seed in the ground. But who caused the rain to heaven to fall? Because at the place where they were, in the, they were in a place that they couldn't build an irrigation. Yeah, 
where, where they were, they couldn't build the irrigation. He speaks at one time, he said, you watered your crops with a foot. That's finally where they were close to a river where they could dig, dig irrigation to water their crops. But there was a time when they didn't have that and it was only the rain of heaven that determined the success or the failure of their crop. And so what he's saying is when you come to the house of the Lord and you give, that's not a product of you just sowing seed. That's a product of the soil that was provided to you by God and the rain that fell from heaven to bring it to fruition. What is that? That's being thankful it's being thankful someone say amen <laughs> and we should do that uh, I need to hurry we should do that now I'll, I'll finish up with this here this morning you can just bear with me here for just a few minutes it was during the earlier part of the 20th century that there was a family who lived in a house directly behind a local apostolic church as it was there were eight eight children earlier part of the 20th century okay <laughs> there were eight children uh, in this household they're being raised by a father and a mother who in that house they conducted family altars they taught their children to pray to they read the word of the lord to them they encouraged them to each of the children to pick up an instrument and learn how to play it they would oftentimes gather everybody around the piano in the house they would sing together in harmony uh, as a family, I almost felt a little connection with the story, honestly. And despite nearly what would seem like a nearly perfect home life, one of the brothers decided that he was going to run away. He had been disciplined by his father for misbehaving. I can understand that. Maybe this was the punishment that seemed to push him over the edge. Something maybe he'd been thinking about for some time. After all, at this moment in time, he was 15 years old. He was tired of being treated like a child. You know, those teenage years, those things start happening. Of having to do chores, follow rules, do what he was told. So one evening after dinner, he marched himself into the kitchen where his mother was standing and washing dishes and announced to her, I'm going to be leaving home. To his surprise, his mother said, okay, well, if that's the way you want it, then let's go upstairs into your bedroom and pack your suitcase. He wasn't expecting that response from his mama. He's taken a little aback by her response. So he quickly recovered his composure, followed his mom upstairs as she's marching upstairs. Got up there. She got down on her knees and reached under the bed and pulled out the old suitcase. She placed it on his bed, began going, his mom's doing this, began going through his dresser, carefully packing his clothes and busily arranging his suitcase. Now she says, now, son, it's fine if you want to run away from home, but I think there are a few things you need to think about before you leave. All right, he said, what are they? She says, well, yes, son. She says, you need to look around this bedroom of yours. This is where you and your two brothers sleep every night, where you do homework, talk about the events of the day, wrestle, fight, play games, just have a good time. This is where your dad used to come when you were little and tuck you into bed, tell you the bedtime story, lay his hand on your head and pray over you. While he thought on that for a moment, she quickly added, so just take a good long look around because since you're running away, this may be the last time you ever see this bedroom. With that, she buttoned up the latches of his suitcase and shoved it in his hand, and they started downstairs. She walked out of the room while motioning with her hand, and there they went as they walked into the living room. She said, now this is where we have family altars, where your father reads the scriptures every Saturday morning right after breakfast and then leads us all into prayer. This is where we gather around the piano, and you and all seven of your brothers and sisters sing together beautifully in harmony. 
Sometimes your kids, some of you kids play some of your instruments. And we have the best of times right here singing and playing and worshiping God together and join one another's company and family time. She says, at Christmas time, this is where we line up all ten of our dining room chairs back to back and place presents on each chair for each one of you. And your children, and after you children place presents on dad's chair and my chair, we cover them all up with a large white sheet. And on Christmas morning, it's so fun and exciting to see the children come running in with that white sheet over all the chairs. And they're wanting to uncover them and discover what's there. But before we do that, this is where dad always reads the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. Leads us in prayers. We thank God for the reason for the Christmas season and is coming to the world to save us. And then we open our presents So take a good look around, son, in this living room. Because if you're running away from home, this will probably be the last time you'll ever see it. And with a little gentle place on his shoulder, her hand on her shoulder, she ushered him into the kitchen. Now, son, this is where I fix breakfast for you early every morning. Your whole life, you've awakened to the smell of frying bacon, eggs, toast, perking coffee. This is where we have our dinner while we talk about school, your teachers, dad's day at work, and all the neighborhood news. This is where we enjoy table games and where you learned how to play Monopoly and chess with your brothers and sisters. And this back door right here is where I'm usually waiting for you to come home from school every day. And I welcome you with a hug and a kiss, even though I can tell you don't always like it. But I want you to take a good look around this kitchen because if you're leaving home, This is probably the last time you'll ever see it. The young man was bewildered. Why wasn't she stopping him? Why wasn't mom keeping me from going? Why is she giving me this grand tour of the house that I'm so well acquainted with and telling me everything that I already know? Why is she she not talking me out of running away and leaving? What kind of mom is she anyway to be doing this right now? I mean, any sensible mom would be crumpling right now in pieces at the kitchen table with her handkerchief and her head laid in it crying. She should be sobbing about this horrible mistake that I'm making and wailing about how much she's going to miss me. But instead, she's telling me all that I'm going to be missing. She's not telling me about the trouble I may be getting into when I leave the family or the home. She's telling me about what I'm going to be missing out on. She was the picture of calm, Mom was, he said. She gently took me by the shoulders, put me close, gave me a little kiss on the cheek. She told me she loved me, and she led me out the back door with my luggage, and she let me stumble down the chairs and go. I turned around and looked at her once or twice as she stood there at the back door, and I stared in disbelief as she smiled and waved as I went and closed the door. He says, I spent the rest of the night going around from neighborhood to neighborhood. I kind of lost my nerve about running away from home. I hadn't thought about all the good things at home, how safe home had been, how secure home had always felt. I didn't take in consideration all the good times that I would miss and the fun family times that were ahead still yet to be lived out that I would never participate in or get to get to have any part of and and so because of his result his weakness was coming concerning home he could not though by no means go around in this moment so he found one of his neighbor's house and he spotted their porch and a place underneath where he could stay so he got up underneath the porch laid down and the old old neighbor's dog came in and crawled in beside him and they both slept there that night 
But early the next morning, that boy gets up. There's a back on there's a knock on the door on the back there of the family house. The mother had spent all night in praying and talking to God about her son. When she opened the door, his face was soiled, his clothes were rumpled, but there was a slight smile on his face as he smelled in the kitchen, bacon frying, coffee perking. Mommy says, I changed my mind. Can I come back home? She says, why, yes, son, it's good to see you back so soon. What changed your mind? He said, well, Mom, I really got to thinking about all the good times, the good food, the good family I was leaving behind. And it just made me want to get humble and admit I was wrong for wanting to leave in the first place. I just want to come back home. If you understand with me this morning, there may be somebody today that just needs to reacquaint themselves with the good things. <laughs> oh, the perks, if you will, and the privileges of having God as your father. If you can just bow your heads and close your eyes, somebody just might need to reacquaint themselves today. Somehow the adversary of our soul will, uh, you know, the boy was leaving originally because of a punishment of his father. You hear me? Because of the punishment of his father. It has always been the tactic of the adversary to distract our attention on one, what we would consider a negative aspect and forget all the good. It was the tree, if you will, of knowledge of good and evil that the serpent called Adam and Eve's eyes to and said, the Lord said, you cannot partake of this tree. But by the means of telling them they couldn't partake of that one, he was distracting them from all the other trees in the garden they could partake of. Somebody need to go around and say, well, this tree right here you could have. This good tree that you've had before, you can eat that one and that one. They had to read. They needed to be reacquainted with all of the good things, the right things, the proper things. And God's goodness this morning is desiring to lead us to a place of repentance. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve any of this. God's mercy, God's mercy has extended it to me. Nonetheless, God is providing a space of repentance for us today. I want to take advantage of the goodness of my God and advantage in the proper meaning of the word. Not, not in the meaning that, that means I'm conniving and so on and so forth. But I, I, I want to access what he's made accessible to me today. That place of repentance. Has he healed your body? That's God's goodness. Has he cured you of a terminal illness? That's God's goodness. Has he came through with finances when you needed it? That's God's goodness. Have you felt him during times of struggle of your personal life with temptation and wasn't walking in alignment with him? Did you feel the presence of God and was able to speak in, in a heavenly language? That's God's goodness. Not his endorsements, but his goodness. And his goodness is trying to lead us to places of repentance. The Bible says in New Testament scripture, the phrase is, and we use it oftentimes, when times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Do you know what the first few words are before that that we skip over oftentimes, Brother Fred? It says, repent ye therefore when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. A good key to the door of refreshing is the key of repentance it's the key of repentance
I want to take advantage of this space today. These altars are open. If anybody would like to just bend on the knee today and say, God, I don't want to ever, I don't want to ever posture myself in the place that I have believed that you owe me some things as though it should be granted to me. That I, 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 you know, I, sh- God, you owe me that promotion, or you, you owe me that good health. I, I've done this and that for you, God, folks. If we're going to start doing the comparison game, you're never going to be able to tip the scale with what you've done for God compared to what He's done for you. It's not going to happen. God, you've been good to me today. Let's sing this morning. These altars are open. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.